This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. So tonight we are going to continue validating and proving and authenticating the Torah. Not that it needs to be authenticated, not that it needs to be proven. I got everything right here. Yeah, Not that it needs to be proven, but it is uh, something that, that uh, we do, it, it is very important to look at. I was, um, you know, I was giving part of this class and, they, and someone asked me, it's like, who are we trying to prove? What, what, what are we trying to show? I said, we're not trying to show anybody but ourselves. We're trying to show ourselves how true and how valid the Torah is. Today we're learning uh, to Yosef Meir ben Hanamiriam and to Lefuashlema of Avram ben Bracha and Leilu Nishmat Tzila Bat Rabbi David. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to be speaking about is the, there is a, a cluster of stars called the Pleiades. Is anybody here familiar with the Pleiades? Okay, so uh, the reason, first of all, why this is so interesting to people that are interested in these things, uh, is because, because um, first I would say like professionals, but you know, some people are interested in stars and ast- astronomy and things of, of the such. So one of the reasons is, is because it's the closest group of stars to, the, to, to Earth in a, I guess you could call it a, a cluster. It's, um, and I would say close, it's, it's still about 450 light years away. So you're talking about two and a half thousand trillion miles away. So it's still pretty far, but it's still relatively close. Now, What's very, very cool about this, and if you look at, at the screen, so um, you see where it says Pleiades over there? How many stars can you see over there? This is what you see more or less from Earth. Five. So you see five, six. Imagine, and this is what we see from Earth, if you know where you're looking, you know what you're talking about, you're looking over there. Um, w- one of the most hilarious scenes that I've witnessed is people who pretend to know what the stars are. And, you know, they, they see the lion's belt. I never knew the lion had a belt over there. Um, you know, they see different things over there, you know, and they're saying, oh, yeah, and here's the beer. And they just, like, make things up. Uh, but if you know what you're doing when you're looking at the sky, you see a cluster of stars. You see how it's clustered together? How it's very close together in that area? I know I'm pointing. I can use an arrow. You see this area over here? It's very clustered. You could see about five, six, seven, eight. If you have, like, super crazy vision, maybe you can see a little bit more. But generally, you're not going to see more than that. Now, when the, you know, before we had telescopes, if I were to tell you, you see that group of stars? That stars is over 100 stars. Would you believe me? Most likely not. Why? Because you believe whatever you see. I see 5, 6. There is 5, 6. Where is the 100? How come I can't see it? The, uh, you know, and, and what's interesting is if we zoom in a little bit, we see, you see, how the, you see how we're zooming in, and all of a sudden you see a little bit more stars in that cluster. In that, in that particular area. We zoom in again, and you see this. Oh, and then you see this. You see, the, uh, you see this, uh, I'm not sure what's there in the middle of over there, but <laughs> around the graphic part, the graphs, you see over here, there are, there are the still six stars or seven stars that you see, but all of a sudden you see hundreds of other stars surrounding it. Now, the, the reason why, why this is very interesting is, and by the way, do you know what Pleiades is uh, the word for in Japan? I'm sure, you, you know, we have any Japanese people over here? Okay, no? Okay. Um, from the thousands of people that are in this room, there's not one Japanese, that's pretty surprising. But uh, the word for this is, is uh, Subaru. And in fact, what's something very interesting, when you look at their, uh, their symbol, does anybody know what Subaru is? Yes. Okay, very good, okay, good. All right, so we're, we're getting somewhere. Okay, so um, 
the you see the stars? It's a group of stars. This is the name for the Pleiades, and this is why they call it Subaru. Is the is the is the Japanese uh, version of it. Now, what's very interesting about this particular, and here's if you want to see it, interesting. I apologize for the people that are listening only in audio, where where the visual is not so is not going to be so long. This is this. You have to understand how fascinating it is. So this is here's a, here's a short clip. Here's where you see that as we're zooming in to the Pleiades. You see those? You see that over here? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. It's good to have you back. <laughs> no, 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 by all means. So, um, here, let me show you how it is. So, you see when the distance, when you're looking at it from far, you see this group of stars, it doesn't look any more than six. Those blue highlighted ones. All of a sudden, you go in. You know what? We've been trying so hard. We've been trying so hard on this. I don't know if it's worth it even. So, yeah, I'll show you my laptop. Okay. See, when you're trying to do Torah stuff, technology doesn't like to, to, uh, to, uh, to go. So, okay. So, yeah, if I say the word. So, if you see over here, as you're zooming in closer, all of a sudden you see more and more stars. The reason why I'm showing you so many pictures, so many videos of this scenario is how difficult it is to know or I should really say how impossible it is to know without zooming in that there's so many stars over there. There you would think that there's five, six, seven stars and that's about it. Now, the reason why this is so interesting is we look at the Gemara. The Gemara in Brachot, page 58b, they ask a question about these group of stars. Again, why is this group of stars so interesting to people? Again, in the, in, in the ancient world, this was very, very fascinating to people because it was the only group of stars that's the closest to the earth. So you saw that, you know, uh, you know, fairly clearly, um, if you know where to look at. So the Gemara says that this group of stars, it's called Kemea. Now, why is it called Kemea, the Gemara asks? It says because it has about a hundred stars. Kemea, like a hundred, which means around a hundred stars that it has in here. Rashi, who lived about almost a thousand years ago, about 900 years ago, says that this means that the majority of the stars is a hundred, but there's rather a lot more than that. Now, the question that I ask you is that we saw the first slide that we saw that it looked like five, six, seven stars. How could Rashi, or why would anybody even think to say that there is a hundred stars in there. I don't see a hundred stars. Why would I think to say that? And the answer is, and this is where the method that we're going to be going on today, is we're going to see that the Torah has information. That we were, it would have been impossible. Let me repeat that. It would be impossible for us to know back then when we didn't have the technology. So rather, how then did we have this information? A very simple answer. Because God gave us that information through the Torah. And this is what we're going to see, you know, uh, you know, again and again. The the idea also, we're going to speak a little bit about astrology, about the sun, the stars, a little bit. The um, there is something called comets. The comets, the the when we first found out scientifically that comets go around in a um, at a fixed intervals, which means is that you would know in the comet. For example, we'll use a Halley's comet. So Halley's comet was found by a astronomer by the name of Edmund Haley, in the end of the 17th century. what He studied the orbit of the comet, and he saw that it comes out in intervals. And that's why we know that you're able to see every X amount of years, this particular comet. Every X amount of years, this particular comet. And you know where you look, you know where to see it, and we know how to calculate it. The first time that we, we had that was, again, about the late 1700s. Did we have this information prior to this? So let me read for you a very, very interesting Gemara. There's a Gemara that says that Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua, they were traveling on a boat. Now... I don't have to tell you, back then travel, you know, especially over boats or overseas, was not like we were dealing today. You don't go on a cruise, right, and you get, you know, the, 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 this amazing, first of all, you could swim on the, on the, on, you know, on this, on this, what is it called? A cruise. You could go and you could eat like, you have a variety of different things that you can eat. You have a hotel, you're able to shower, you're able to go to the bathroom, everything is wonderful. It's as if you're in a hotel on water. Back then it wasn't like that. You're on a wooden boat, 
that shook every time there was a wave, and there was no refrigeration. You basically brought in, and you couldn't be like, yes, today I'd like to eat the salmon, tomorrow I'll have the bass, please. You had whatever you brought on. And maybe if they caught the fish, maybe they'll, they'll sell you some of those things as well. But you had whatever you brought on. So you would prepare. When you go on a journey in the olden days, if you are living in the olden days, you would go and you prepare. You say, okay, I'm going for three weeks. I'm going to prepare food for three weeks. And then I'll have you know, enough of them. When I'll, when I'll end, when I get to, to shore, I'll go and, and uh, you know, acquire more food. Rabbi Gamil went and he estimated the time that it takes to go from point A to point B. And he took the amount of food that he did. Rabbi Shua took more. And after, let's just use an, uh, you know, an example, let's say after three weeks, Rabbi Gamil ran out of food, but Rabbi Yeshua still had more food, and they didn't get to their destination. So Rabbi Gamil went over to Rabbi Yeshua, says, uh, listen, I see you have more food, can, can I please have some of your food? And he says, yeah, not a problem. Then he asked him, he says, how come, how did you know that we are going to be extended? It usually never takes this long to get from to, in, in, this, in this destination. Why would you think that it would take us long, and how did you know to bring more food? So Rabbi Yeshua answered, very interestingly, he said that every 70 years, there is a certain star that arises, and it detours the sailors, because the sailors, how do they go and they navigate the seas? They would go and they go based on the stars, you know, they go, you, you, you angle your boat towards this star if you want to go to this destination, and so on and so forth, to these different stars. He said there's a certain star that appears, which means it's not there all the time, but it appears once in every 70 years, and... They, I calculated it was going to be around this time. I figured this might deceive the sailors. I'm going to go on a detour. Hence, I brought in more food just in case. This, Rabbi Yeshua said, about 1600 years prior to Edmund Haley coming onto, uh, you know, onto the sea. And what's very interesting is that there are people that made calculation and they calculated, and there's an argument on this if it is or if it isn't, that Haley's comet should really be called Rabbi Yeshua's comet because this is the comet that he was talking about. It was a comet that was passing by every 70 years that came and it passes by. And again, there are people that argue it, but regardless of, of the argument on this particular scenario, we see over here that the sages had information that we only found out right now in the past you know, few hundred years. There's also a very famous idea on how many stars there are in the universe. The, uh, you look at even 500 years ago, even if, let's go back 1,000, 1,500 years ago. You ask a random person, you know what, better yet, you ask an astrologer. You ask them how many stars are there in the universe. So assuming he was bored for about six months and he wanted to count the stars and he counted the stars, what number do you think you'll get? 4,000, 8,000? Let me give you twenty thousand. Roughly, what's naked to the to the you know to to the eye um, to see without any telescope, without any additional you know device to to see far out into the stars. You're talking about anywhere between five to twenty thousand stars maximum. Now, if I were to tell you back then there's a hundred thousand stars, and I'd be like, "What are you kidding me? I don't see the hundred thousand stars. I wouldn't believe you." What if I were to tell you there were a million stars? That's ludicrous. That's crazy. What if I were to tell you there were over a quintillion amount of stars? First of all, you would ask me what is quintillion, because I probably didn't know that. But after I explained that to you, you say, absolutely, there's no way that you're talking about. Take your medication. They didn't have medication for psychotic back then. So they will just say, you're crazy. Um, you say, I'm really living in that mode. Okay, I'm, I'm in that scene. Okay. Um, so, the, but the idea is, is that we would not believe if you were to tell me that there was more stars than I could see. Now let's look at the Gemara in Brachot. The Gemara in Brachot, page 32, says like this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it inside and I'll explain it as well. God said to the people of Israel, I created 12 constellations. This is constellations referring to the, um, you know, you have the Pisces, the Leo, the, you know, Cancer, um, the Scorpio, Scorpio, you know, all the, what are they called? Zodiac right? sign. Zodiac sign, right. It's so funny because, you know, people are, go so far on the zodiac side to the extent that before they date someone, they'd be like, well, what sign are you? Well, we're compatible. What? 
who, where did you get this information from? Whenever I had that, I'm like, if somebody asks me that question, right, a little check goes in my box that says, crazy. Um, I shouldn't. Kind of truth to it? Like, there is, but we don't know it. We don't know it. And I, I could almost, you know, 99%. I shouldn't say crazy. I take that back. Okay. Um, I don't want to edit this, so just make believe I didn't say that. Um, my apologies to all the people that uh, believe that Leo Shamario, Lula, whatever. Um, it, it's, it, but the idea by this is, is really ridiculous. To think that, you know, I'm only compatible with, you know, a, uh, a cancer because that's what the, the Daily News told me. Uh, you know, like, you have serious problems. Where, why am I keep on going here? I don't know. Okay. Must be. You know, maybe I should just stick with it. All right, yeah, you've got issues, dude. All right, let's, let's just move with it. Um, you should not base your future soulmate on what some astro- you know, someone who's writing a blog from their parents' basement while eating Cheetos is deciding what's good for you and what's not. Now, granted, is there information on this? Yeah, there is. But do we know it? No, probably not. You don't know it. Um, the people that know it are not writing blogs and saying, yes, this is who you should marry. The people that do know about this are learning Torah all day and they're not being asked these types of questions. So... Moving forward after that. So there's 12, 12 constellations. The Torah says, and conti- the Gemara says and continues. It says, for each constellation, I created 30 hosts. Now I'm going to continue with the mathematical equation, but it's very simple. If I were to tell you, I created 12 groups, and each group, I created 30 hosts. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the total amount of hosts? You would know, you do 12 times 30, and you get to the number that you would, um, to, to the, to the final number. So now, that is the mathematical equation. It's very simple. It's times, but whatever it is, I'm going to tell you. So, 12 constellations, Times 30 hosts. Then the Gemara continues. For each host, I created 30 legions. Times another 30. For each legion, I created 30 divisions. Times another 30. For each division, I created uh, I created a battalion. Doesn't say 30. I created a battalion, and I created 30 camps to each to uh, 30 camps to each camp. And I have attached 365,000 tens of thousands of stars. That means 3.6 billion stars. So now, if we do the math, the math is as follows: You take 30. Somebody have a calculator if you don't believe my math? Okay. You take 30 camps, times that by 30 battalions, times it by 30 divisions, times that by 30 legions. You don't have to write legions, you just do the times 30. Times it by 30 hosts, times it by 12 constellations. What is the number that you get? That is the wrong number. Um, okay, let's do it again. 30, I'll do it very, very, 30 times 30 times 30. Times 30, times 30, times 12. And we get to the magic number of 291 million. Very good. 291 million, uh, 600,000. Now, we didn't put in 3.65 billion. Don't erase it yet. Now, times that by 3. Point, let me I'll just give you a number. 3650. Did you lose it? Okay. I'll tell it to you. Just trust me. Or just do it on your own time. 291.6 million is we got time. Then we have to times that by 3.65 billion. You get to a very, 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 very large number. This is the number of stars in the universe. And the number gets into 10 to the power of 18 plus another 64.3 quadrillion. Right? So that's a very, very large number that we're dealing with over here. Now they did about, now if you ask science how many stars there are in the universe, they're going to tell you we don't know. 
But they try to do a calculation. How do they do this calculation? They base it off how many stars, for example, and again, this is a rough estimate, how many stars we have per galaxy, how many galaxies there are in the universe. You times that number, you get roughly the estimated number. Now, when they did that, they get, uh, obviously, they get a wide variety depending on who's doing this calculation, but they get anywhere between 10 to the 19th power to 10 to the 20th power, 20th, even if they go up to the 24th power. The Torah says 10 to the 18th power, and they go 10 to the 19th, and so on and so forth. So we see over here, Something really fascinating. That the Torah, Chazal, the sages were able to describe how many stars there are before we even knew that there were so many stars. Now, how did they know that? How is it possible that they knew that information? One, one, one guess would be that God presented this information, part of the oral law, and we'll soon see why we needed to know all this information. God presented this information in the oral law and gave it to uh, Moshe Rabbeinu and hence it passed uh, you know, down um, from, student to, from rabbi to student. So we, we see over here again that it was impossible for the sages to know these information. Now, if I were to tell you, let, let, let me explain the, the significance of this idea. If let's say I were to tell you something so crazy, if let, here, let's, let's give you an example like this. The sun, right? We're familiar with the sun. The sun is, if you look at it, it's, I don't know, about this size. I'm holding like a coin size from if you're looking at it from the, so much so that you're able to so, or almost put like two fingers, let's say, and block the sun out and, and whatever. You see the sun obviously around it, but you wouldn't be able to see much more of that. If I were to tell you right now, with our technology that we have today, the sun is really that big. But what we see over here, because it's so strong and so powerful, we think that it's bigger than it is, but the sun is really this big. Would you believe me? Assuming I'm not as charismatic and a good, I'm just kidding. Assuming that I'm not, assuming, assuming that I don't know anything, whatever, I'm just giving you this information and you know a lot about science, you know a lot about technology, you know about astrology, you know about all these things, you say I'm crazy and you do need medication. Now, let's put that on the side. Now I tell you another prediction. I tell you, uh, that the sun, let's keep while we're sticking on the sun, uh, this is what just coming out of the top of my head. The sun is not really one, it's really a thousand little stars that are bound together, but they're so strong and that's what it's producing a bit like. Again, you'll tell me, direct me to the people in the white coats. Uh, and the more that I present this crazy information, the more I think that you're crazy. But now, let's say I put this all in writing, and 50 years later, they come up with this crazy technology, they're able to send something closer to the sun, take pictures, and guess what? Everything I said was right. Now, what would you think about me? Some people might think that I'm still crazy, and um, I wouldn't, maybe, right, uh, regardless of the something. So, uh, but besides that, you'll think that, number one, either I had some crazy technology that no one else knew back then, or I was privy to information that no one else knew also back then. Now, what if I were to tell you, you know who told me these things? I spoke to a prophet, I spoke to God, whatever, you know, the, the imagination, you know, carries you, and they told me this thing. All of a sudden, now it starts validating everything that I said. Now you want to start everything else that I said that you might have thought it was crazy, you might want to go and look into it. Now, when the sages brought all this information out, it was not the common science. This is what, not what people thought. This is not what the scientific world thought. So, now that we see it, all of a sudden we have to think about it. Wait a minute, how did they get this information? They must have got it somehow that we didn't have this knowledge uh, you know, prior to this. Being that we brought the sun, let's speak a little bit about the sun. But you understand the, the, the fascination about it. The sun has a sheath, it has like a, a cover, has a layer uh, you know, around it. Now why is this so important? The sun, the outside temperature of the sun is 6,000 degrees Celsius. We're talking about roughly over 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If you want to tan, all you need to go is take like a second over there, and you're going to be so tanned that you're going to be disintegrated into nothing. Um, so you're going to be, well, that's, <laughs> that's going to be tan, thin, whatever it is that you want. You'll get everything that you want in one, uh, you know, one shot. 
The center of the sun is 15 million degrees Celsius. The outside, 6,000 degrees Celsius. The inside, about 15 million degrees Celsius. Now, there is a storm brewing inside the sun because of the intensive heat. So much so that there are waves of, of heat that are going around the sun. Now, the sun has a protective layer around it. What is that purpose of that protective layer? Because if, if this, these strong waves would not be protected by the sheath, then it would, it would increase the heat that we were receiving on Earth, and we would not be able to survive as we survive it today. Now, this is information which obviously we were only able to figure out recently. The Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah, which is written over 2,000 years ago, yeah, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years ago, is, is in Midrash Rabbah, in Bereshit Rabbah, chapter 6, it says, the sun, very clearly, has a sheath. Now, how would you know that? If I were, if you were to look in the sun right now, and you would not know anything about, you know, astrology of the sun, and I would say the sun has a, you know, has a special layer that's covering around it. Uh, you know, I, I don't see it. Why would I, why would I believe it? Furthermore, the Pasuk in Tehillim, let's see over here if I have it, of it's course, not it's not connected. Um, there's a Pasuk in Tehillim, I'll bring it up in this, uh, it says over here in Tehillim, that's written over here. It says, I don't know if you can see over here, Lashemesh Sham Ohebahen. For the sun, he made a tent. He made a tent. There's like a surrounding, you know, uh, within it. And what's what's very interesting, the Midrash, you know, goes on. And it goes in explaining. And it says that in the time, this is even the Gemara, the Gemara of Zarah, page 3, says that in the future, there's not going to be health. There's not going to be Gehenom. What's, what's God going to do? God is going to remove the cover from the sun. And for the wicked people, it's going to be a punishment. For the righteous people, it's going to be a benefit. It's going to be a reward. Which means is that we have over here, already 2,000 years, 1,500 years minimum, we had this information that the sun has a sheet. Now, how do we know that? How is it possible to know this, this type of information? Moving on from the sun, we'll move to the, to the moon. The moon uh, is very interesting. Oh, I wish this would be plugged in. The moon is, um, we know that the, the Torah has, our calendar is, is, is very strongly based off the moon. It's also based off the sun for, uh, for, for leap years. But what we have over here is something uh, very interesting. Because we know that, let's say, for example, um, Pesach has to be in the 15th of Nisan. Uh, Sukkot has to be the 15th of Tishrei. We know also that Pesach has to be in the summer, in the spring. So we know that it is very, very important for us to have the correct, the correct calendar date. And that's why, you know, you look at, for example, the, um, the Muslims. The Muslims go all based off the lunar calendar. Why is this not working? The Muslims base off the lunar calendar. And they base off, they base off only about, you know, I'm gonna look at the camera over here and this will I'll figure it out. The Muslim base off the lunar calendar. And the lunar calendar has 354 days in a year. The solar calendar has 365 days in a year. Now, the, you know, the, for example, Ramadan. Are you familiar with Ramadan? Anybody know what Ramadan is? This is where everyone loses weight. No, I'm just kidding. So, uh, Ramadan is a month-long fast for the, for, for the people that follow Islam. And what's interesting is because it's every 354 days is the lunar calendar, Ramadan always moves around. So for some people, when they're born or when they're young, Ramadan is in the summer. That's very difficult. Imagine you know, fasting from morning to night in the summer. is very different from fasting from morning to night in the winter. The, uh, so Ramadan, it moves. It's constantly moves every, whatever, 19 years, whatever. It changes, it changes the entire season. The, so for the Jewish people, it always has to be the same. <laughs> Mine is not working. Okay. There we go. <gasps> no one move. Okay. So... The, okay, now, there is a certain calculation. I'm gonna have to just skip to this part. We have to know, there's, uh, the, the Chazal tell us that we have to know a certain amount of, I can't skip it, I'm sorry, I have to give you the before. Okay, everyone pray to God, please, that this would work. Um, the, 
how did we find out that there was going to be a new moon? You had two witnesses that would visualize, to see the, the, you know, the beginning of the new moon. They would go and they would testify the moon, and that, that they saw the new moon, and hence the new moon would begin. One time, many, many people came to Rabbi Gamliel. And they say, listen, Rabbi, we saw the new moon, we can testify the new moon. The Rabbi said, impossible. He says, what do you mean we saw it? He says, because we have a tradition. And I'm going to quote to you. This is a, this is a, this is a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. It says, we have a tradition that the renewal of the moon can never be less than 29 and a half days, two thirds of an hour, 73 parts of a minute. This is the calculation for the next thing that I'm going to show you. This is the calculation, which means is that the new moon cannot be less. You see where it says the Torah? It cannot be less than 29.530590. That is what it cannot be less, mathematically speaking, of the calculation I had in the previous slide. NASA. Anybody familiar with NASA? I don't know why I'm asking all these questions today. Okay. Um, everyone knows what NASA is. Um, uh, they're the ones that listen to... I'm just kidding. Uh, they're, uh, the, so NASA is... Um, NASA ran also their, their numbers. And they have... This is not something that they can't see. This is not a guesstimation. This is, the, this is something that's very hard science. NASA put the number... As 29.530588. This is the number. This is the number of the Torah. This is the number of NASA. And to be honest with you, yeah. This is the, the amount of time that it takes. So it's 29 days, point five three zero five nine zero. how long it takes for the, for the moon to, to become, yeah, to go around. This, by the way, is the main reason why I wanted this, uh, because I want, I want you to just show the, visualize this, this idea. The Torah brought this down over, 1,500 years ago, was already documented. You see how many decimal places? You're talking about six, six numbers past the decimal place. Look at the difference between this number from Torah and NASA. The difference is, and we look at the last three numbers, it's 590588. That's difference of 0. 0.000002, if I said enough zeros. Which means is, that's not a difference of a second, that's a difference in a part, not even a particle of a second. How did the Torah know this information prior to, prior to we having all the technology. This is what, in my opinion, this is one of the strongest proofs. Because we have over here NASA, we have over here the Torah. There is no way that we would have this information. So is NASA wrong? NASA is wrong by point zero zero two. Well, don't worry, they'll get it soon. They'll get it right soon, yeah. So, uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the Germans did a calculation also. And they got, instead of point zero five, instead of 588, they got 589. They got a little closer. I'm hopeful they'll figure it out. But uh, regardless of that, you see how, even if you want to say, look at how close it is to the card signs that we have now to, we ha- to what we had before. And the, the Hazal tells us also, it says that we have this, where from Moshe Abenu, we got it from Harsin. I said, we need to know, why do we need to know this information? Because our calendars are based off the lunar calendar. We need to know when to look at it. So this is very, very imperative that we have this information. And yet, we, do, we see over here that we, uh, we, we do have this information. Let's move on to uh, the next idea. Let's not skip. Okay, so, spoiler alert. Okay, so the, being that I'm asking you questions today, I, I don't know why, but let's continue with the theme of today. If I were to ask you, is there water in space? Would you think yes or would you think no? And let's keep it very simple. By a raise of hands, how many people think no? How many people think yes? And then there's how many people who did not raise their hand at all? <laughs> most people. All right. Just to make sure that you're wrong, that you're not wrong. Okay. So um, I always love doing that. So we had, uh, it was it was pretty split, actually. Um, three ways, literally. Uh, um, so, yeah. So the Jewish answer would be, how many people think of Machlokas? Everybody raise their hands. Okay. So it's actually, it's not Machlokas. The, the idea that there is, there is uh, water in space. First of all, I'll tell you there is. 
But now, now we know that there is. But let's look at what the Torah says, you know, and the Chazal bring it down. The reason why I'm telling you Chazal, it's not that it was only brought up by Chazal, because that's when we have it documented that it was written. Before that, we don't have it that it was documented. It was orally, so you can say, yeah, we made it up now afterwards. But we have this documented that was written in the Torah, in the, in the Gemara, or in the Midrashim. There's a Midrash Chabah in Bereshit. Chapter 4, that says that not only is there water in space, but there is greater amount of water in, in space than we have on earth. Now we know there is a lot of water on earth. What is it? 70 plus percent of the, of the world is ocean is water. And in fact, this is why when you go out of outer space and you look into the world, you see it mostly blue. Why? Because that's the, that's the water that you're seeing. The Medrash Rabbah further goes on, in Bereshit Rabbah, goes on further in chapter 4, and says that not only is there water in space, but it is frozen. Now that is the information that it says. Now let's see what science says now. The science says that there was a, um, in Russia, there's a place called Tunguska. There was a, it's called a Tunguska event. It was, there was a large explosion. This was in, uh, forget it, I'm giving up on it. So, uh, it's giving us a time or something, right? Oh uh, no, it's... The what? I don't know. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Technology. Yeah. Like I'm DJing. Okay. So we're coming. Okay. So now the, the the this happened in Russia in June 30, 1908. There was a large, large explosion that flattened 770 miles in the Siberian forest over there. Right? Coincidence? Chabad? I don't know. So if anybody else says, I'm just joking. Okay. So. Um, the scientific experts back then went and they looked and they saw that there was a block of ice that fell from outer space and it was about 40 meters in diameter, a fairly large block of ice weighing 30,000 tons that crashed into Earth. There was a professor, Fred Whipple, from Harvard University. He is the director of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. He successfully proved that comets are made up of a mixture of ice, dust, and rock. Now, all of a sudden, we come into recent, recent information over here that there is ice in space. But more than that, it says a small comet can contain about one bi- a small comet contain one billion tons of ice. A large comet has over a thousand times greater than that. Are you guys familiar with the comet's tail? Yes. Okay. So, I'm just speaking to you, apparently. Okay, so now, so the, the, um, it's sort of like when you see the, the, a tail of a comet. Oh, there we go. This is a pretty easy explanation. Okay, so what happens is by the comet's tail, I really should have, you know, taken a picture. I, I, my apologies. I thought people would be familiar with that. But um, you just look up on your phone, comet's tail. Um, I'm sure you'll... Well, if you have a kosher phone, then you're going straight to Ganeidin, so you don't have to worry about that. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe not. The truth is it's a blanket statement. But it is very important to have a kosher phone. Plug in for a kosher phone. Okay, so now um, the... Oh, we can't get anywhere today. Okay, the comet's tail. What happens is, is that when the comet approaches Earth, the sun heats the ice up and evaporates, creating this type of vapor. This vapor creates a sort of a gas halo. And when the gases that are emitted by the sun, it is, um, it, it's, it's, when it strikes the halo, when it, when it strikes the halo, it creates what we know as the comet's tail. The, um, and this is what we see over here. So it's really the gas evaporation of the ice from the comet. There is a part of our solar system that is called the Oort cloud. This is named after the discovered Dutch astronomer John Hendrik Oort. This, he says that this area alone, there are about a thousand billion comets. It's a lot, very, very large number. That these comets, if it were to melt the ice on these comets, they would be able to fill up all our oceans over a thousand times. Bless you. So we have over here, 
from the Torah, from the Torah already had before that, that, that in space we have more water on, than we have on Earth. And now recently we found out, this is, uh, this came out in the, in the mid 19, what, uh, mid 1900s. It came out that all of a sudden we know that we have more ice in the, which means more water in space that we have on, on Earth. And in fact, planets like Saturn, Neptune, Pluto, they also have layers of ice as well. Again, this brings us to the point that how did we know? How did the Torah know this? It's not like you could look and be like, yeah, that kind of looks like ice. You don't, you, you, we, we don't see that. There's no information. The, the idea also of a shooting star. You know, it's very interesting, a shooting star. So I was speaking about this once, and uh, this, uh, this week, uh, once. Um, and the, the, I, when I was wondering, I'm like, you know, shooting star, people say make a wish. Now why? I was like, why do they make a wish? So then I was thinking about it. I said, you know what? And I think I read this once upon a time somewhere. That uh, what they what they what they used to think was that when the when you see a streak of light, what happens is there's a tear in heaven, and the heaven is bright, the light because it's awesome, it's amazing, and it's light, and the light shines through. So you quickly make a wish, so you sneak into heaven over there, and ah, there you get over there. I don't know if that's the right interpretation. This is what I just thought. But then I was like thinking, and I'm like, why do you make an, a wish on an eyelash? Uh, but then I realized I'm trying to think of psychotic reasons for psychotic people. So then I was like, I stopped, you know, figuring uh, that idea. The um, well, I really offended. You know, it's probably the same, you know, group people that believe. And okay, so um, all right, let's dig in a little deeper in the hole that we have. All right, so okay, yeah, okay, thank you. It's only one more slide. That's all we're waiting for. We just skip to that. Thank you. Okay. So apparently, I just said thank you to the computer. So um, all right. Where were we? Okay. The in ninety. Oh, this is something even more interesting. Um, not that everything else until this point was not interesting. Every twenty-four hour period, there's approximately thirty thousand particles with a total weight of more than six hundred thousand tons that enter the Earth's atmosphere. Now the question is: If there's so much that enters the Earth's atmosphere, how come we don't see it? How come we don't see this thing? So in nineteen eighty-six, Professor Lewis Frank, an astrophysicist from the University of Iowa, that says like this: says that we don't see these these meteorites because when they they're mainly composed of ice, and when they enter the atmosphere, they, they, uh, they sort of evaporate, and they eventually, and listen very carefully, they fall as rain. They fall as rain. And there was an annual conference of the American Geophysical Union that Professor Frank, the same Professor Frank, he did a research with his, with his colleague, Dr. John Sigworth. And they, they, had, they presented a series of, photo- of photographs that were taken by the Polar spacecraft that showed the process, that showed that meteorites are moving towards Earth, they enter the atmosphere, they melt, and they turn into rain. And we see over here that, and we, you know, that, that, and they claim over here that we know that Earth, the, the rain that we have from Earth. So do you guys know with the water cycle? Are you guys familiar with the water cycle? It's time to get a little bit in, yeah. Okay, you went to school? Must have been in yeshiva if you learned this. Um, the, 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 the cycle is as follows. You have the water in the ocean. The, it, the sun heats it up, it evaporates. It rises, it, it becomes a gas state, it rises up, and then it goes into the higher skies. So the higher skies, it's colder. So there's something called condensation, where they condense and they turn from a gas state to a non-gas state, and this is where they turn into clouds. The, the wind blows it onto earth, then it goes something called precipitation, and the water, and it starts raining. That is one area that we get rain from. But says science, that no, we get another area of rain. We get rain from space. When these clouds go and they, and when these, when these meteorites go and they enter the Earth's atmosphere, they actually come in from space. This we all found very, very recently. Let's look at what the Gemara in Ta'anit, page 9a says. Rabbi Lazar says the world drinks water from the ocean. And based off a pasuk, a pasuk in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. It says over there that the mists ascends from the earth 
and waters the entire surface of the ground. This is the cycle of condensation, saying literally, and it says, you know, literally, that this is referring to from the ocean. And in fact, the Gemara asks, you know, Rabbi Shua asks, he says, but the, the water is salty from the ocean, how do you drink it? So the answer is that it gets sweetened in the clouds, whatever, you know, that, that means. But we see over here the cycle of uh, precipitation that the Gemara already had already over 1500 years ago. But then Rabbi Yeshua says something very interesting. There's, a, there's another source of water on earth. And he says in Beso of a Pasuk in Dvarim, chapter 11, verse 11, Lematar hashamayim tishte mayim. Water from the rains of the heaven. Which means that in Pirkei Dirabilezer, in the fourth chapter, says that there's two types of precipitation. There's one orienting from the oceans. There's another one, then this, by the way, the oceans is where we get the majority of rain. But there's another rain that we get, a higher quality of rain, that this falls from space, it falls from heaven. This we already had over 1,500 years ago. We had the information that we're getting rain from heaven. Not only are we getting rain from heaven, but this is something that science didn't figure out yet. The quality from the rain from space is greater than the quality that we have on, on earth over here. Now, this made me think of a great business idea. Sell space water. Imagine that. You know how much people pay for Fiji water or Voss water? I don't know. I probably should have checked this, but someone told me that Voss water is not even spring water. It's just filter it or whatever it is, uh, you know, some sort of other type of water. I don't know how, this is the, be- the, the, the beauty and the amazing, uh, the, the idea of marketing and how much people will pay for a bottle of wine. I don't know what's the most expensive water over there, but you have water, be like, okay, this is from Fiji, I'm going to pay more, more money for it. This is from Poland Spring, I'll pay this. This is from Bermaim Chaim, whatever. So, <laughs> I'll go there. so um, you know, the Bermaim Chaim, uh, you know, spring. Um, it flows through Bar Park and through Lakewood. Uh, so, the, um, and I'm just kidding. You should drink Baramayim Chaim. It's a great company. You should, uh, you know, fully support it. The, support the password too. The what? Yeah, we support everybody who's Jewish and has a good clothes and we like. Okay. Um, alright. So now, the, idea, you know, the idea behind it is we have here so much information. We didn't even get to Earth, by the way, yet. We're still dealing in space. Wait until we get to Earth. All this information that we had in space, you know why it's so fascinating and why I started off with space? Because we can't see it. We can't understand it. How did the sages, how did the Gemara, how did the Torah know about this information? Must be that we had this information from a higher power, a higher source. The, the idea that the world is round. Question, yeah. Was this information made public? Yeah, it was written in the Gemara. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was only validated later, and then they were like, oh, look at that, the Torah knew this all along. Well, I guess you were onto something. 2,000 years too late. But whatever it is, yeah. So, um, the idea that the earth is round. So, we know um, that historically, we did not, the people on the planet earth did not literally believe that the world was round, because it didn't make any sense. In fact, they believed that the world was flat. And what's very interesting, and thank God we could go to the final slide over here, and we could finish with this, that this is actually what a large majority of people saw that the world was. Um, and yes, those are four elephants under the earth. And yes, it is on a giant turtle. And it's swimming in a large amount of, you know, here. This w- I found the picture. I don't know. I'm sorry. I would have liked to get a better picture, but this is what I found. With the, I literally created all this in, the, in like 20 minutes before I came here. So I didn't have a chance, and that's why I couldn't make it, you know, more prettier and more professional looking. But you see over here, this is what they used to think. That if you go too far, you'll fall off earth. You'll literally fall off earth. The earth is flat because logically speaking, this makes sense. Now think about it. If I were to tell, if I were to tell you, if I were to tell you that the earth is round, you would laugh at me if you lived, you know, back then. Well, and, that, and more than that, if I were to tell you that people live on the other side of earth, what do you think is the first thing that they're going to say? Crazy. <laughs> Besides crazy. Yeah, it's true. 
says how they're going to fall right off it. People that are living on the bottom side of Earth are going to fall right down. In fact, before Sir Isaac Newton found out gravity, now again, I have to explain this. It doesn't mean that he was like, oh, there's gravity. Wow, look at that. Like everybody knew when you drop something, it falls. But the idea that he found out was that there is, you have a large ball of mass, it's going to attract. And what, what this means is that no matter where you are on this large mass, you'll be attracted to it. Upside down, doesn't matter. You'll be attracted and it's going to be right side up for you. So when he discovered gravity, all of a sudden something started making, you know, making sense. And in fact, the, 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 where, where really like finalized the idea is, this is actually a little bit prior to Sir Isaac Newton, it was Christopher Columbus. He found America. I discovered America. I hate this. This terminology is so wrong. He didn't discover America. There are people living in America. And be like, it's, imagine someone coming in and be like, aha, I found something that no one ever found before. Like, uh, we've been living here for like centuries. Shh, don't talk back to me. I'm British. You know, whatever, wherever he comes from. So he discovered America. Now, uh, you know, again, so he discovered it to the civilized world, you know, back, you know, where he, uh, you know, where they existed. But how did he discover America? He was actually trying to find a shortcut to India. And he accidentally came into America and he found America. And this is where they started piecing the idea together that there must be that the world is round because you're able to get to the same place, you know, by going in one direction if you go, you know, a sort of a, a complete circle. The, you know, and this is where we found out and this is where we finalized that you said, you know what, let's etch a sketch that idea that the world is flat. It actually, the world is round. Let's see what the Torah says. This is where we go even before we look at Tanakh. We look at Isaiah. Chapter 40, verse 22. It says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. He sits above the circle of the earth. Says Rashi, what does it mean, circle of the earth? It means that the earth is round. Rashi lived again roughly about 900 years ago, way before Christopher Columbus, way before anybody could even think about inventing something called a telescope or anything else that could see into the, you know, into the far distance. So we have over here already information that we knew that the world was round. In fact, there isn't even halachot, that if somebody is holding a round ball, if it's considered idolatry, if you're not allowed to do it because it's considered as if he's in control of the world, so on and so forth. There's a lot of information that we have that it's actually based on practical halachot that we have over here. So we see over here that the Torah already knew that the world was round before the world knew that the world was round. The scientific idea idea on it. Furthermore, Chazal say that not only that, I'll, I'll quote you some very, very interesting things. There are people both on the bottom of the ball and on the top of the ball. And he says, they're all God's creatures, but they look different. Why? Because the ear is different. And, they, and it go on and continues that there are places in the world when, when they have light, the others have darkness. And when they have darkness, the others have light. And the, furthermore, they go on and they said that there are certain places where the day is really short and, uh, and the night is really long, and vice versa when the de- night is really short and the day is really long. Now, how did they know this information? They didn't travel the world back then. You're talking about 2,000 years ago. How did they know all this information? How did they know that there are people living on the other side of the world and they look different? And in fact, you do. You do see that. There are people from different parts of the, of the, of the earth. And I'm talking people that have been living there for a very, very long period of time. They sort of look a little bit different. You see the difference between Asia, Asians, between Africans, between Americans. You see between the Scandinavians. They have different characteristics, you know, in their, in their, in their actual physical appearance. Now, I don't know if the scientific world came up to it, but the Torah says it's because the ear is different over there. And you know what's something very interesting? The ear is also different in Jerusalem, in Israel. In Israel, the ear is different. If I'm not mistaken, it has a higher oxygenation level. And it, it's, it's better for the brain. It's more, it makes, you know, you're able to use your brain in more at higher capacity. It's, it's, you know, and it's something very interesting because people in Israel are very, very smart. And you have, you have there, and you know, the, the high tech, the, there's a lot, a lot going on in high tech in Israel. You drive down a certain uh, street, and I forgot what it was when I was driving down in Israel. I saw, you saw like Microsoft. You saw all these like big companies, big Intel, you know, IBM. You see all these big companies that they all have huge research centers in Israel. Now, why? 
Why would you have research engineers in Israel? Have it in India. It's a lot cheaper. Have it in other. Maybe they probably also have it in India. But why have it in Israel? Because there's a, you know the people, the, the Jewish people. You know we do have brains and we use the brains and we and it's not like we've been you know. This is what we've been doing since we were born. We've been focusing on computers. And in fact, you look at the majority of the Israelis, even the scientists, what do they do? They go through the, you know, through whatever, the yeshiva system or through the, the public school system over there. Then they go to the army for three years. And then they decide, you know what, let me dabble in high tech. You know what, let's invent, high, you know, WhatsApp. You know, let's invent all these different, you know, ways. Let's invent all these different crazy ideas. You have over there, and it's not only that, the Jews use their brains. We spoke about this. The Jews are very, very studious. The... And we have over here that the idea that their people are different because of the air. Something very, very fascinating. Furthermore, you look at the ancient world and you ask them, how come they're stars? How are they standing in the air? So what they've said is that the sky, the stars, the heavens over there, it's a ceiling for earth. How are they standing? There's four pillars that are holding the sky up. We can't see them because it's very far out, but they hold, because logically speaking, nothing can stand on nothing. It has Anything cannot, yeah, nothing can stand on nothing. It has to be standing on something. So it must be that there is some sort of pillars that are holding this up. What did the Torah say at the time? In Eov, in Job, chapter 26, verse 7. It says, Tole eretz al blima. He suspends the earth on nothingness. You know what's something interesting? Blima, you split it up, bli, without ma, nothing. It has nothing. It's, it's suspended on nothingness. Which means is, that we knew already before, you know why that they had to have it, that the, the, the world was standing on elephants. And by the way, you know how they thought earthquake was? The elephants had an itch or something. They moved a little bit and that's why it was the earthquake. So the, you, you had to have this. Why? Because the earth can't stand on nothing. It has to be, we know, we see something fall. It has to be standing on something on solid ground. The turtle swimming in a large ocean. Yeah, uh, now it makes sense. Yeah, 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 it makes sense. Okay, so... <laughs> But the idea that we have over here is that the Torah had information that not only we knew so much about space, but we knew even the, 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 the properties of the way that it existed. The world was on nothing. We know the world now rests on nothing. It's in space. It rests on absolutely nothing. Okay, now that we finished space, now we can go a little bit on Earth. Okay, so um, Earth is where we all live, right? in case you introduction. Okay, so there is um, something called circumcisions, uh, which I hope everybody is very, very familiar here with circumcision. It's called the Brit Milah. What happens in Brit Milah, the eighth day of a baby's life, they get a little um, surgical procedure that is pretty painful, and also, if you think about it, kind of dangerous. Now, one of the largest complications for these type of procedures is to bleed out. That you bleed out, that you bleed out too much. And in fact, the the the... You know, okay, let me explain it this way. There is something called vitamin K. Vitamin K produces something called prothrombin. This is a clotting factor. So, uh, you know, if you think about it like this, you have a cut. And what's stopping all the blood from falling out of your system? Like, just like every, you have a balloon. You make a cut in it, the air falls out. The, the air is not going to combine with a clotting factor and sort of block it and be like, you know, we're going to hold the air in together. Everyone hold hands really tight. You know, all, all, you know, all the oxygen particles are going to hold the air really tight. Yeah, and we're going to be, you know, we're going to close this together. We don't have that. Rather, all the air goes out. But something very interesting, when the, when the body, when you have a cut, all of a sudden you have the certain chemicals that, that you know, feel, that realize that there's a cut, the, the, the brain sends signals. It produces clots and it sort of closes the hole and, and you, you, you clot up and you don't bleed out. The what? It's a miracle. Yeah. It is. It's really unbelievable. The one of the one of the foundations of this is vitamin K. Now, there's something very interesting. They did a study. Vitamin K should be at 100%. That's where you are, you know, generally in your in your life. It should be at 100%. If you are very low, then you bleed out very easily. If you're very high, well, it's not possible to be any higher than that. Then you have good clotting factors. So now they made a very interesting study. For the first seven days of a child's life, it fluctuates. It's actually going up. It gets up to 100. 
And when it reaches the eighth day of a baby's life, it moves from 100% to 110%. After the eighth day, it dips down, back down for 100% for the remainder of the life. Now, this is something very fascinating. The Torah says that you have to have a circumcision, a dangerous surgery, which we'll see not really so dangerous, a dangerous surgery on the eighth day of your life. But the God already implanted that on the eighth day, every baby on the eighth day has a clotting factor. The vitamin K goes up 110% to make sure that there's no complication, which is something also very interesting. The complications in in circumcisions. So when you look at complications, it, this is actually done by a study. This was a study done in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1990. The complication rate is 0.19% when it's performed by a physician, by a doctor. But if it's performed by a mohel, a certified mohel, it falls down to 0.13%. Which means is, it's, there's less complication if a mohel does your surgery, your, your circumcision, than if your, your physician does your, does your, um, does your, your circumcision. Dr. Armin J. Quick. He was the author of several works on the controlling of bleeding. So this was especially, this doctor was, his specialty was, was bleeding. And I'm gonna quote for you. It hardly seems accidental that the right of circumcision was postponed until the eighth day by Mosaic law. How did the Torah know this information? And you know, when I was telling this to somebody, somebody asked me, says, did the Torah know about this information? And I said, to be honest, we don't have any record of this. No. We don't know that the, the clotting factor is higher, the, 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 you know, on the eighth day. That's from my knowledge. But this is something very interesting. Even we didn't know this information, which makes it even more fascinating. Because if we would have known about this, we would say, okay, you know what? Let's make this on the eighth day, and then we're going to plug it in all together. It's going to be beautiful. We're going to blow people's minds. But we didn't know about this information. We found this out only recently. We found this out only recently, and we found it out that it just happens to be the same time that when we have to have a circumcision, that's when you have a very strong protection against bleeding out. The animals. Let's move on to animals. It's getting late. We're going to have to pick up the speed a little bit. The animals... Um, we know that they're in, in Vayikra, in Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1 through verse 8, it says on how do you know if there is a kosher animal or a non-kosher animal. So we know there are two criteria. Number one, it has to have split hooves. And number two, I don't know why I'm doing this, I don't have hooves, but you know, it has a split <laughs> hooves. Um, and number two, it has to chew its cut. And if it has these two criteria, it's kosher. If it has only one of these criteria, it's not kosher. If it has zero of these criteria, obviously it's not kosher. Then the Torah goes on and it lists four different animals that have only one of these criteria. So it, it lists the gamal, the shafan, and the amnevet, that these animals chew their cud, but they don't have split hooves. And then also it lists, it lists the chazil, the pig, which has split hooves, but doesn't chew its cud. Now when we analyze the Torah, we say, you know why? It says only these four particular animals because there are only four animals in the entire existence of the planet Earth that have only one of these signs and not the other. Which means is you will never find an animal that's not listed over here that has only one sign. It could either be the Shafan, the Anevit, or the Gamal for the chewing of the cud, or the Chazil, the pig for the splitting of the hooves. Now, the reason why I'm saying Shafan, Anevit, and Gamal in Hebrew is because the Gamal we know is a camel, but the Shafan, Anevit we know so one is a rabbit. But there's a you know there's an argument on what the um, you know on, on what the the Anevit is and, and what we refer to it in that. But let's look at the Chazil for example, the pig. The pig, what we're saying is, is that there is only one animal in the entire world that has split hooves, but does not chew its cud. Now, was Moshe a zoologist? Was, was that his profession before he became, you know, a leader of the, he wasn't. Did he know? And even if he was, he would know only the animals in his, you know, in his area. Would he know what's in the Amazon jungle? No. He wouldn't know that. For anybody who's not aware, Amazon is not only a, a shopping site, it's all, okay, fine. So, um, you, you would not know about this. Now, if you would be lying and trying to sell a religion, would you put this information in there? No. You would etch a sketch this, erase it, I'm no interest in telling you about this, and move on, forget about this. You can only, you know, only if it has, it chooses cuts, and if it has split hooks, then you know if it's kosher. Why would I go on and say that you're not gonna find anything else? 
the only person who can, the only entity who can make that statement is the only one who created the universe and knows all the animals. And you know something very interesting is they tried to cross breed. They tried to interbreed and they couldn't breed one, spe- one, only one animal that has only a one of these kosher signs other than the four that we have uh, written over here already. This comes out even more fascinating. The, tum- the Gemara in Chulin, page 59, goes on and says like this. It says that if you find an animal, which is mouth is mutilated, which means that you're not really so certain, you're not really so sure if it chews its cud or it doesn't chew its cud, but you see that it has split hooves, and you know what a pig looks like, and you know that this is not a pig, it's a kosher animal. Which means that this is already actually brings it to practical halakha. That you know that you can eat that animal if you know that it has split hooves and you know that, it, that this is this is not a pig. Rabbi Kiva goes on in the in the Bryce and the Safri goes on and Pashat Re'e says that here we see a proof that you see for the people that 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 say that Torah didn't come from heaven because there's no way that anybody would be able to go and it would even be silly enough to go and say this if they didn't have very very strong backing to it. And the same idea we look at at fish. So we know animals you have to have fins and scales. No, that's not true. I said fish. Go on. I'll continue after this. Per se, yeah? yeah we don't know where to... Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to eat giraffe meat? You don't have to taste something to know that it's kosher. It just has to have the signs. Uh, besides, from my understanding, I don't think giraffe meat is that tasty. I've spoken to somebody who ate dog. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, ate it in Thailand or somewhere. He like whispered it to me also. He was like, he's like, by the way, I taste a dog. I'm like... You know, um, but now that he told me that, how did it taste? He was like, "Do you want?" I don't know if you want to hear it. I don't know why I'm speaking about this, but he said it was pretty chewy. All right, moving on. So, um, so um, I almost went a little racist there, but I hold myself back. Okay. So um, the in Leviticus chapter eleven, verse nine to verse ten. What about fish? Fish have to have fins and scale. If it, it's kosher, you have to know that it has to have fins and scale. And the oral law in Nida tells us like this. That if it has scales, it must have fins. But if it has fins, it does not necessarily mean that it has scales. Which means is that if you find a fish, a half a fish, and there's no shechting in a fish, right? Let's say you find a fat. Let's say okay, you're not gonna really want to eat a half a fish. But let's say you go to let's say you go to a store, and um, they're selling half fish, and you ask them, they say, where do you get the other half of this fish from? He says, I don't know. Stop asking questions. You buy you, you go out, right? <laughs> and you go over there. And you want to buy this fish, and you're not sure if it has if it has fins, but you see that it has scales. You know automatically it's kosher. You can buy it. It has it has also fins. Now, the amount of fish that we have in the oceans is a lot. You're talking about well over forty thousand different types of species. Now we didn't have submarines back then. How did we know that every fish that has scales has fins? How would you even, why would you even say that? Why would you even put yourself in a position that's so difficult and so easy to be refuted? And yet, to date, it hasn't been refuted. So you have all this information over here that the Torah, the only way that the Torah would know this information is only if they were, they gave the God this information from somebody who possibly created the world and knows what there is and what there isn't on earth. There was a, then we're moving on to Shechita. In, um, there was a study that was conducted in 1961. Now again, this is a study that was done in this particular area. I'm going to share with you the study over here. Is it true for all the slaughterhouses? I can't say yes or no, but I'm going to share with you the study that was done. The study that was done that they they test they they checked horses, dogs, and other animals that were brought into the slaughterhouse. Which slaughterhouses was that was you know slaughtering dogs and you know other and horses? I, I don't know, but there was a slaughterhouse that was doing this information, this uh, this this type of slaughtering, and they saw that the animals resisted when they came into the slaughterhouse. They started resisting. They didn't want to be part of this. They, they felt something was going on over there. Then they went into the kosher slaughterhouse where they saw the lambs are walking on over there, 
And they were like just chilling. They were just like cruising the place. They were like walking over there. And they were relaxed. So much so that they wanted to see if the, if the, if the animals are get agitated. So they showed them the slaughter knife. You know, like, this is what you're gonna do. You know, I, I don't know if they said that. But they showed them the slaughter knife. One lamb actually went and licked the, licked the knife. Thought it was, saw some blood over there. Licked the knife. Thought it, I don't know. Thought it was ketchup, whatever it was. And he went and he licked the knife. They went and they further tested. They said when an animal that uh, ruminates, that that has that chews its cud, that it, it when it's nervous, when it's agitated, it doesn't chew its cud. So they went and they saw the animals in the slaughterhouse were actually still chewing the cud. Which means is not only did they not realize what was going on, they didn't have they, they were completely relaxed. They were completely chilled out. They were relaxing. They were doing their thing. They were chewing their cud. They were doing what the animals do, what they uh, do best. Not only that. Furthermore. The um, the Torah also makes it very tzal is a very very important aspect in Judaism. You cannot just um, and I tell this to my kids also. And if I'm walking and let's say my kid sees an ant and wants to try and I remember this happened this happened once since then they didn't do it. He wanted to step on an ant. What do you see an ant in the house? The first thing you want to do is step on it. I'm like why are you stepping on it? If it's outside, let it live. Let it, you know, you see a cockroach, whatever you find most disgusting, let it live. What does it have to do with you? Why would you have to go and kill it? And I said, we can't kill it. Not mosquitoes, yeah. not mosquitoes. I will kill every mosquito after they're on the It's a bit shalom bias, right? Um, the, but the idea behind this is that, first of all, in the house, that's a different scenario. If it's coming into, obviously, you're not going to be like, hello, I'm going to name you Albert. And uh, please uh, feel free to, uh, you know, come as you please. And, you know, you're going to be Mickey. Uh, that's a mouse. Well, if it's outside, you should not be killing any animal. If it's inside your house, you want to clean it. Obviously, it's dangerous. There's certain ideas. Yeah, do what you got to do to get rid of it. But if it's outside, you know, don't be one of those, you know, people who will be like, have a magnifying glass and a board hot day and be like, let's see what happens when I do this to ants. Um, that's al Chaim. You can't, you can't do that. Furthermore, when you cannot slaughter an animal in front of another animal. Why? Because maybe, now again, the animals are not going to be like, Jimmy? <laughs> What's going on? He says, why is your head on the floor all of a sudden? You know, I, I, the animals, you know, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my ability, they're not going to be like, you know, running and be like, do you know what just happened to Jimmy? In, in, you know, in sheep, in sheep tongue, right? So it's probably going to sound a little bit like, ah, 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 ah. Um, but you're not going to have that information. But yet, why does the Torah, <laughs> why does the Torah, you know what it is funny? Because laughter is contagious. You know what laughter is contagious? If I, and I'll tell you like this, you have to come to all the classes because this is great. Um, yeah, you know, if you're in a bad mood, just watch a video of a baby laughing. You cannot be in a bad mood after that. I mean, somebody could have just like skied your car, but if you see a baby laughing, it's like, you know, it's just like, you're like, ah, oh, come on, man. Yeah, all right. You know, it's all good. I don't know if you'll say that, but whatever, you'll be in a relaxed mood. Yeah, laughter is amazing. It is a very good medicine. Um, what did they say? Laughter is the best medicine? I don't know if I would say laughter is the best medicine. Um, I think Tylenol works a little bit better uh, than laughter, but it's definitely, uh, definitely a good medicine. Okay, so um, uh, where are we? Okay, so the slaughterhouse, you're not going to see an animal be like, you know, guys, don't go over there. Bad stuff happens. You know, I've seen it with my own eyes. They're not going to get agitated. But still, just in case, the Torah says, you're not going to slaughter an animal in front of another animal. They cannot see, they cannot get agitated over here. We have a very, very strong, um, you know, protection for the animals as well. Now, granted, you are allowed to eat the animals. We're not vegetarians. You are allowed to eat them. You are allowed, but it has to be done in a very humane way possible. In fact, that's why the slaughter knife has to be, the shkita knife has to be very, there, there's criteria that has to be the, the most um, painless possible for the um for the animal. I don't know why this popped into my head, but I will share with you a very disturbing uh, idea that just popped into my head. So uh, get ready. Um, I have... Three, yeah. 
for reasons beyond my understanding, I have seen a video of ISIS um, take someone's life. And why, you know, people send me stuff, I don't know why. Um, but it gets into the classes, so, you know, entertain, I don't know. So, but what, what's very interesting is that you have people that are literally, they not appear human for, for the, what they do. And when they kill people, they're not going to shoot people in the head. They actually slaughter the person. I see the slaughter person. The knife was, was rigid, which means is that you have to saw off. The, should I stop? Do we need to go on? Which, oh, the motion. What? He's a guy. Yeah. Um, the, the idea behind this over here is, is we see over here that there are human beings on this planet that do not treat human beings, fellow human beings, with the same respect that the Torah mandates that a human would treat an animal. Which is something that's very, very interesting. You see the, the morality of, of, the, of the Torah. And it's something very interesting. And I can't, I, I was looking for to, to, you know, to validate this. And again, again, I say this every week, but I apologize. We're going a little bit overboard. It shouldn't be that much longer. <clears throat> Might not be true what I just said. Um, but if you do need to go, please, uh, by all means, uh, you know, feel free. The... This is something very interesting, and I, I was trying to look for validation from the scientific world, and I couldn't find it. The idea is like this, and I heard it from, from a few different sources, that in a non-kosher animal, there are veins going on the top of the neck and the, and the, and the bottom of the neck. I should really say the top of the neck and the bottom of the neck. When you, uh, a kosher animal, they have those both veins, but they sort of convene to the front of the neck. Now, when you feel pain is when your brain sends pain, you have, you have pain receptors, and it sends it to the brain, it gives you that information, and knows that, you know, this hurts, you know, do something about it. And this is very important, because if you, didn't, you wouldn't have pain receptors, you would touch a really hot thing, you would just be, you, you would not, until you smell burning meat, and be like, oh, someone's making a barbecue, and then you realize it's you, it would be a very big problem. So we have pain receptors, and the second that you touch it, you know that it's hot, and you move it awake very quickly. The way that we have it is because we have the brain. We're, what is the, the lifeline of the brain? Is the blood. Now, if you detach the blood going from the brain to the body, you don't feel anything. Now, something very interesting is that the veins in a kosher animal are all in the front, which means that the second that you do shechita, you slaughter the front of the neck, that's it, the, the, the animal doesn't feel anything instantly. That's it, there's no pain. As opposed to the non-kosher animals, you have to slaughter the entire neck in order to stop it feeling pain, which means is that it takes you know, you know, time for it. Something very interesting you know, idea to, to uh, ponder about. Yeah. Well, we don't chew our... really weird question, I know, but I'm saying what that means, they're not, because everyone will say... We, not, we are not kosher to eat, no. Okay. We cannot eat it, we cannot eat humans. Um, in fact, um, the, you know, the idea is, is that, but let's say, even furthermore, and I think we spoke about this once, if, let's say you are starving to death, and, not you, God forbid, somebody is starving to death in the middle of a desert, and there's one other human that he found that is, that is either dead or almost dying. Now, if you don't know that that person is dead, when it's a life risk, you could do almost anything. Literally almost anything, except for three things, right? Idolatry, murder, and, um, and, and, uh, and adultery, and immorality. So, besides... Okay. What? That was a lot. <laughs> oh, those three are a lot. How often are you come to the point where you're <laughs> like... Hi, yeah, own. Uh, start hanging around new people. Uh, <laughs> so, I'll be like... Just avoided murder today again. You know, <laughs> talk about it, right? Brownsville. Okay. If people don't know, Brownsville is very dangerous here. Okay, whatever. In Brooklyn. Um, uh, so okay. So now, um, but the idea is, let's say somebody's almost dead. If you're and you're starving to death, you're not allowed to eat the body. 
Why not? Because you cannot kill the body any earlier. But if, let's say, a body is dead and you need to survive or something like that, then dot, 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 you can do almost anything to... Um, but again, that's only if you know 100%. You know what? Let's not go into this. Allah, you know, discussion that uh, I really don't want to get into. And, um, and you, no one here should ever know about the, you know, that, that question. But this question did come up in the Holocaust. But in any case, the, uh, moving on to the next... Uh, to, eat an, to eat a human being, you're not allowed to eat a human being. Only if you know 1,000% of the person's dead. But then, whatever, there's questions on it. Well, it's, it's very probable. Well, so, back then we didn't, but whatever. Nowadays we have, whatever. There's different, uh, you know, you shouldn't have that information. There's a lot of different variables that, that come into play over here, but in short, don't eat any humans. Um, let's just leave it at that, period. Okay? Um, for all the cannibals out there, um, I don't know why you're watching my class. Um, so, uh, you know, anyways, so what about a bee? A bee is something very interesting. We know that, and the, the, the Torah says like this. The Torah says, whatever comes from an impure, such as eggs or milk, for example, it remains impure. You're not allowed to eat it. Whatever comes from pure, you can eat it. So milk that comes from a pure animal, you're allowed to eat. Milk that comes from an impure animal, you're not allowed to eat. The question is, what about a bee? A bee, you're not allowed to eat a bee. Yeah, don't make bee stew. You're not allowed to make that. Um, probably pretty crunchy. But you can't, uh, you, you should not, you're not, you should not, you're not allowed to eat bee. But if we're not allowed to eat bee, then how could we eat its honey that comes from the bee. So, the recent studies found um, some amazing facts, that the bee has two stomachs. That one is for digestion, the other is for honey production. And not only that, that the honey stomach has absolutely zero digest- digestive juices. There's nothing assaulted, the, the, it just sort of you know, goes through the, the bee for, uh, for creating the honey. The Gemara in Bachot, page 7b says, the honey, and this is written a lot before this information came out. The honey of bees is permitted because the bees store it in their bodies, but it does not contain secretions from their body. Now I'm going to ask you, how did, did we dissect the bee and see like there's two, you can't, we need microscopes, you need, you know, certain things to see that. How did the Torah know that bee is allowed because it does, it has two stomachs and it's created over, so there's different secretions going on over here, and that, you know, that other animals, we're not allowed to, we're not allowed to eat over here. We see over here again that there's information that there, it was impossible for us to, uh, to know about it. The um, Benjamin Franklin. Anybody know who Benjamin Franklin was? Now these people use credit cards, but Benjamin Franklin is uh, is on the hundred dollar bill. So uh, what he was, he was also a, an inventor, and he invented. Anybody know what he invented? One of the most famous things? No, no, no. That'll be that'll be sweet. Uh, lightning, the lightning rod. I don't know why he just said lightning, because that would have been very weird. He did not invent lightning. He meant lightning. What is lightning rod? So if you put a, a, this, this, this iron rod on top of your house, it would, prev- it would prevent the lightning from hitting, from hitting you, uh, the house, and the, destroying the house. Because it's not the highest thing in the area. It's also out of iron attracts. Um, and I don't know why. So, someone literally just sent this to me today. Um, there, there was a joke about something. You know what's the world record of, of, uh, of lightning hits per person? Seven. Seven. Imagine that scenario. How do you get hit by lightning seven times? You're like, right, you're like, you walk out, you get hit by lightning, you'll be like, wow, that was crazy. You know, and then, you know, by the second or third time, you know, I don't know what it was if it's a row in her life. I didn't look at it, but, but, you know, by the sixth or seventh time, you'll be like, God doesn't like me, you know, like there's a reason, or, or you have some sort of superpower, um, that you just don't know how to use, you know, one, one or the other, but it's, it's a very interesting idea where, where, you know, I found it very bad, how do you get hit seven times a lightning? It's like, you know, some people are just like bad at certain things, like he's just like bad at being outside, you know, like this is, um, 
but you know, it's something very, very fascinating. That, you know, that, that maybe it's over a lifetime. Maybe he, maybe he sits in there and he's like, he, I don't know. Maybe he wants. I don't know. I don't know why he's saying he. Maybe a woman. Um, right? Gender equality. Well, it's a he probably. He, right? Who's dumb enough to go outside so many times after getting hit three times already? Stay in when it's raining, dude. Yeah, get the point. Um, okay, but. The, so, so that was his invention. Now, the Tosefta, which is written also about 2,000 years ago, says that there are certain things that you're not, if the Gentiles are doing it, you're not allowed to do. There are certain things that you are allowed to do. What is the criteria? If there's no logical explanation to it, you're not allowed to do it. It's called Berchem Mori. You're not allowed to do it because you're following the ways of the Gentiles. There's absolutely no reason. Because they can do things based on superstition. The example that the Tosefta uses is that you're not allowed to place wood chips on the handles of the pot to make sure that the food doesn't boil over. Why? Because there's no logical explanation to it. It's just something that they did, superstition, whatever reason that they did, so you're not allowed to do it. But, on the other hand, you're allowed to put pieces of mulberry tree into the pot to shorten the cooking time. Why? Because there's a natural explanation for that. So things that are natural, you are allowed to do things that are not natural, that you don't understand the reason for it. No, 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 they, by the handle, specifically by the handles, it does something, I don't know what it does. I can't explain it because there's no explanation for it, uh, to, to the best of my knowledge. Then the Tosefta goes on and says that you now let it place an iron rod among chickens so that they will develop healthily. Why? Because there's no natural explanation for it. But you are, and it is permissible to place a metal rod in order to save the chickens from lightning. So the Tosefta says over here, what it says over there, because there's a natural explanation for this phenomenon. So... Ben Franklin, right, all about Benjamins, this guy, he, you know, found out, and he, granted, he did, you know, he found it out by flying a car, you know, like, not, not a safe thing to do the way that he found it, a very cool way that he found it, but he found out the lightning, the rod, the iron, he found this out, but the Tosefta, 2,000 years prior to him, already had this information, it says, hey, don't put the chicken, we knew about this, the iron and the chickens, and protect it, why? Because the lightning will hit the, the, the iron instead of the, of the chicken. A few more ideas, and we'll finish. The continental drift, you guys are familiar with the continental drift? Why am I asking everything about here? I don't know. Um, continental drift. So, um, regardless of whether you believe it or not, or you understand it or not, let me explain to you like this. The Genesis, in Belashi chapter 1, verse 9, it says that let the waters under the heaven be gathered together onto one place. The idea behind this says that in the beginning of the creation, there was a single piece of land, an ocean around it. And the Zohar goes on and it goes and explains, Zohar Chalash goes and explains, it says there was one single continent that came out of the water, and from it, seven continents were formed. And this is what there's referring to, and again, there's, there's, there's reference to this in, in, uh, in uh, Mishlei, in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 9, verse 1. But we see over here something very interesting, that there was originally one, one continent, and then it split into uh, seven. In... What was this? 19, 1915. In 1915, a geologist by the name of Alfred Lothar Wigner, he went and he found similarities between the western coastline of the African continent and the eastern coastline of the South American continent, and he saw that they were similar, sort of like a jigsaw puzzle connecting together. And furthermore, he studied the flora of the geochemical structure uh, of the minerals in the water, and he saw that they were very, very similar. Which means is that at one point, these two must be very, very close, uh, closely connected. And they, this, is how, what, this is what they say, the continental drift, that the continents are slowly drifting far apart, which means at one point they were very close together, if now they were attached together. We see over here that this came out in the 19, basically 1915. Meanwhile, the Torah has this information over 2,000, 3,000 years, uh, years ago. And by the way, there's, we don't have the time, but there's different questions to ask. Like, how come there's only kangaroos in Australia? How do you have people in other parts of the world before there was play because before the continental drift there were people that were able to go there scientifically speaking they think that this took millions of years but it wasn't it took it was actually it was actually fairly quickly and this is during the time of the flood and the dispersion is where this uh, is, is where this happened 
Okay, let's speak a little bit about uh, the laws of family purity, the Hilchot Nida. Nida means that every time that a married couple, that a woman is on her period, a man and a wife is not allowed to touch, have to be separated for a certain married period of time. Again, four to five days, then another seven clean days. When you all get married, you'll learn uh, these Alachot, which is a very, very uh, important to, to learn about it. The oral law says something very interesting. It says the best time for a woman to get pregnant, the best, um, you know, the, the, the best time for conception is right after the mikvah. And it's something very interesting that recently science found out that they, that the best time for conception actually coincides with the same time when you can, when you, when the, when a woman goes to the mikvah. Which is if they make the calculation after the period, seven clean days and, you know, after the bleeding and, you know, so on and so forth, the entire, the entire calculation, they found it out that that's exactly when the time is for the best time to, um, to, uh, you know, to, to get pregnant. This the Torah already had before they started, before gynecologists came to the scene, right? Before, you know, all the doctors, the Jewish doctors went to gynecologists, you know, before they came onto the scene, they already had all this information already beforehand. But the Torah says something very interesting. It says, that's not, all, that's not only the reason. It says, furthermore, it's very important emotionally for a husband and wife not to be always, always together. It has to be a separation. Why? Because there is boredom. The people get used to something. But the second that you separate, it sort of refreshes it as if you were new, as if you are from the beginning. And when I speak to non-Jewish people, when I, you know, um, usually it gets to like, you know, Shomer Nagia, you can't touch it, you know, it gets into another whole, you know, conversation. And then they start, you know, asking, be like, wait, you can't even touch your wife at a certain point in time? And when I explain it, the idea... Their, their minds are like, that is such a good idea. I mean, I speak to married people and be like, it's generally the women, not the men that think that it's such a good idea. But they say, this is such a good idea because it's so true that you really feel different because you separate and all of a sudden you become together. It, it really keeps the marriage alive. It keeps it, it keeps it very healthy and very important. And I spoke to many people and that are not religious, let's say, but they'll say the laws of family purity that they'll keep. And I'll say, okay, that's interesting. Why? It says, it, forget about the reason of the of the Torah. Men and women, I spoke to, I said, because just because of keeping the marriage healthy. It says it just makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And this is what the Torah said already. You know, you know, three and a half thousand years, uh, almost three and a half thousand uh, years ago. Okay, the final idea that I want to want to finish off with is these are ideas that I brought up, you know, pre in previous classes. At least I think I did because I, I when I spoke to the guys' class, I said I didn't I didn't say this, but I think I, I did bring this up. The idea that the Torah knew things prophetic things that it was impossible for the Torah to know. And here are some, uh, some examples. So first of all, to understand that it is prophecy, there's certain criteria. Number one is you have to make a prediction, write it down, let's say, before the prediction takes place. I can't tell you a prediction after it took place, that's not a prediction anymore. So it has to be number one, before it took place. Number two, it has to be a very specific prediction. I can't tell you in a poem, in a very vague language, and be like, you know, someday in the future you'll meet somebody, and that person will make you very happy. You know, like, oh, you know, like I have to be very, very specific. On this day, you'll meet somebody that looks like this and and you'll do X, Y, and Z. That's number two. Number three, that a prediction is something that you would predict something that is very, very unlikely to happen. Now, if I make a prediction that is likely to happen, maybe I'm just good at prediction. I'm good at stocks. I'm good at this. I'm going to make a good at prediction. Maybe I'm, that's why I'm good at that. But if I make a prediction that's very unlikely, something that's not logical to come to that conclusion, then it starts making you feel that there is a reason uh, you know, uh, behind it. We're going to have to speed up uh, the... Words per minute? I don't know. <laughs> WPM, I guess? I don't know. Um, okay, so... Because of the of the time, the the Torah gives a detailed detailed prediction on both the first temple and the second temple, and not only that. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter twenty eight, verse thirty, it gives you a prediction that says that if the Jewish people do not follow the Torah, they go and they avoid, they go away from the Torah, then they, they're going to get punished, and they're going to get punished. I'm going to hide my face and so on and so forth. I'm going to give punishment, and we see over here the Gemara and Yuman as well. The 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 
historians back then, during the first and the second destruction, as well as during World War II, where we had the Holocaust, we saw that the Jewish people strayed away from the Torah. They strayed away from the Torah. All of a sudden, God sends a wake-up call, and there is a destruction. Devarim 20, chapter 28 continues to chapter 30. It says that not only that's only very interesting, and look at how particular the prediction goes on, that there is going to be a slaughter of the population, men, women, and children, old and young. And, and furthermore, the exile is going to result in a worldwide scatter. The Jews will have no independent government. They will be, the Jews will be brought back by boat to Egypt. They will be sold as slaves, and they're not going to be purchased. This is the prediction that it gives after the destruction of the second temple. So we see over here a few ideas. Let's go, let's delve into those details in a little bit. There's a prediction of total destruction. That makes absolutely no sense. Why would somebody go and conquer a land and then destroy it? Everybody in, inside of it. You, what you do is, the, the, you would want to tax them. You want to have a tax population. If you kill them, they can't work, they can't produce money, they can't, you can't get any money for it. There is no reason why you would want to destroy a nation that you conquer. It would make no sense. You would want to tax them. The men, you, if you want to take the men, you take them as slaves. The women, you take for other purposes. You take different things for different purposes, but you, you would not kill them. It makes absolutely no sense that you kill them. Second, they say that there's a prediction also that the conqueror is going to speak a foreign language. Now, generally, if you're living in a certain area, who is going to be conquering you? Most likely your neighbors, your neighboring country. Do you understand the, the, you know, the language of your neighboring countries? Generally, yes, because you do business with them. And in fact, back then, the, the common language was Greek, Greece, Greek. It was Greek that they would speak. Greek would be like the English that we have back then. Like now, almost the entire world should speak English. Unless you go to France, they refuse to speak English over there. I've been to France over there, and I would ask them for, you know, the, the information. American, you know? I'd be like, you know, like, you know, uh, where's the toilet? You know, like, you know, and they, and they get so upset at you. Like, oh, no, only French is the most beautiful language. You know? Um... I don't know why we've gotten into, into French, but it's something very interesting that they, they would refuse. Has anybody here been to, to France? Do they speak English to you over there? Yes, because you're supposed to like greet them in French. Oh, uh, yeah. He's a, they get pissed. They get upset. Well, Why do you greet? Oh, bonjour. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you get? If you do it too good, you'll be like, bonjour. And they'll be like, I'm be like, um, no, 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 no. English? I don't know how you say English in, in French. Uh, in, in French. But, um, you know, like, the, the English today, everybody should be speaking English. I'm not saying that because I'm American and be like, you know, like, how could you speak? <laughs> what did I saw? I saw this uh, um, a long time ago. There was a, there was a, there was a girl who said, like, she's like, the whole world should be speaking English. I don't know. I can't, I don't remember enough of this. It says, like, like, you shouldn't be speaking Canadian, you shouldn't be speaking England, you should just speak Americanish. You know, um, so, Baruch Hashem for our, our, our education system in America, teach us that there is like only seven languages in the world, and everybody should speak Americanish, and not any other English type of language. But, um, but the idea, the, the idea is that back then, Greek was the, um, was the English of today. So everybody understood Greek, everyone spoke Greek, everyone understood it. So, if you were to say that, yeah, the people that are going to go conquer Israel are the people that speak Greek, then that would make sense. But it's something very interesting. They didn't speak Greek. Rome conquered Israel. And what did Rome speak? Latin. Latin. Who speaks Latin here? No one, because it's a dead language. I'm sorry, okay. I got a little bit harsh over there. Um, why that's true. Yeah. It's also, it sounds like, uh, oh, whatever. Let's move on. So, um, 
Anyways, um, the the idea over here is we see a prediction that not only the Torah knew that they were going to be they were going to be conquered, but they knew also that it's not going to be an English a, 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 a language that the Jewish people understand. They didn't understand. They did not understand uh, Latin at that time. Furthermore, it says that they're going to be taken on boats to Egypt and not be bought out. Why would you make that prediction? Why would you say, yeah, they're going to be taken on boats and no one's going to buy them, no one's going to want to be with them, no one's going to want to sell them? It makes absolutely no sense. And yet we see that's exactly what happened. Furthermore, they're going to end up all over the world. Which exile ends up all over the world? You end up in one place, two places, a few places. You have a question? I should slow down? Okay, I could slow down, but we, you guys, we're going to be here a little longer than, than anticipated. Okay, fine. So we will slow... I can't even make slow motion talk. I can't. Okay. Um, there is uh, a further prediction that says in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 27, God is going to scatter you among the people. You're going to be remain very, very few. Which means is, is that the Jewish people are going to be not a large, large... We're going to remain very few. Now, why this is very, very interesting is we also have an obligation. In fact, it's the first obligation in the Torah. Does anybody know what the first obligation in the Torah is? Very good, to have children. So you're telling us that you're going to be remain few, but you have an obligation. The first obligation, make sure you have kids. You have to have children. You have to have, you know, to the best of your ability, you have to have children. So I would think that either, there's two, there's two angles I would go through. Either one, completely assimilated, gone. Or number two will be in the millions of billions or hundreds of millions or whatever it is because we have an obligation and we do follow that obligation. You look over here. The Torah says that you're going to be few in number. And not only that, it says that you'll never be destroyed. Which means is you're going to be on this hairline. You're not going to be destroyed, but you're not going to be too much. You're going to be few in number and scattered throughout the entire world. Why would the Torah make such a prediction unless it knew the future and knew what was going on? And the only person, that, the only entity that would be able to do that is, is uh, God. And we know the Jewish people never survived. We spoke about this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The, but what I want to get to is something very interesting. In Leviticus, it speaks about the destruction of the first temple. In Deuteronomy, it speaks about the, the, the destruction of the second temple. And this is what the Nachmanides explained it. In the destruction of the first temple, it says nothing about a worldwide exile. Destruction of the second temple, it says that there's going to be a worldwide exile. So we see over here, and then when do we have the worldwide exile? Worldwide, I feel it's going to say worldwide web. The worldwide exile is in the second, in the second, in the destruction of the second temple. The, the, the idea furthermore, which is something so unbelievable, we know the land of Israel is a land flowing, it's a land flowing of milk and honey. Yet the Torah says that when you're going to be exiled from Israel, it's going to be desolate, it's going to be barren. In fact, we see over here in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 32 to verse 33, it says, and I will make the land desolate, the land will be desolate, it's going to be nothing. Now, if it's a land flowing of milk and honey, why is it going to be desolate? And we see, when the Jewish people left the land of Israel, when they're exiled for 1,300 years plus, the land was barren. We see, Mark Twain went into there and said the land is barren. When the Jewish people were there, it was, it was beautiful, it was, it was very fruitful. And now, something very interesting, now that the Jewish people are back in Israel, all of a sudden it's, more, it's fruitful again. You look at it, you know, I, I don't know, 80 years ago, it was desert, it was full of malaria, swamps, the, Israel was not producing beautiful fruit, it was not producing, you know, cr- you know, agriculture, now it's an export, you know, it's an export business at this point. So, we see over here, something very fascinating, why would the Torah say, how does the Torah know this information? 
We see over here, and not only that, it says also something very interesting, when the Jews return, that it's going to start becoming more fruitful and it's going to start multiplying again. And we see that it's exactly what happened. We see over here so many information that there's no way, there is zero way that the Torah would be able to know this information unless it came from a divine source that is God. And we spoke of the idea about Shemitah. Why would anybody say, for six years work your land, seven years don't work your land, question, dear leader, uh, how are we going to eat in the seventh year? Don't worry, the sixth year is going to produce enough food for the seventh year. Very cool. Let's see what happens. What happens by the first 70 years? If it didn't happen, wouldn't they say, uh, dear leader, you know, we don't have this information. And by the way, when the Jews complain, it's in the Torah. We don't hide it. The Jews, plenty of complaints are in the Torah. But we see the Jews never complain. It's, which means is that it did happen. The Shemitah year always happened. We spoke about the Sota. A woman who commits adultery, gets warned, sees that, whatever, the whole idea behind it, she has to eat special, drink special water. And if she is guilty, she explodes. If she's not guilty, she gets a blessing. This would eventually not kick on if there were people that were doing it and they found out and be like, hey, by the way, this stuff is completely fake. I, you know, was around the block seven times and there was absolutely no problem. You know, don't worry about the water. Drink it, make a shahakal. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. But yet, you don't see that. You don't see that. Which means over here, we see over the past, what are we, three, four classes that we spoke about, that we had numerous sources on how to prove not... A, uh, without a hundred percent, with a hundred percent validity, you should not have a doubt in your mind that the Torah that we have today came directly from God, and we know that based on the information that we have over here. There is no way, and I will repeat it, there is no way that we would have this knowledge unless there was a divine being that gave us this, this information. Knowledge that we only had recently. We went through the Torah codes, we went through the different ideas that you, it's impossible, it is impossible to know over here. Which means as we come to one conclusion. The Torah is divine. The Torah comes from God. And the Zabshem will continue. We'll see. We'll go on to the oral law. And we'll see how do we understand the oral law as, uh, as well. Any questions thus far? Um, yeah. For the baby, um, there are some babies that don't have a breast meal on the eighth day because something's wrong. So then what happens? So the question is like an excellent question. What happens if a baby does not have a breast meal on the eighth day? This is generally due to, to the baby is not healthy. It's, it's dangerous for the baby. I cannot say that when they have that, when they become healthy, the vitamin K level goes up. I don't know. It's specifically by the eighth day. Yeah. But, so then is it more dangerous, so to speak, for them? Well, they're also alive a lot longer, so they uh, have a stronger sick, immune system. So... Well, usually it's not necessarily that they're sick. They might not just be the, the bilirubin. They might just be yellow. They might just be, you know, the, there might be different factors. Yeah, they're not as healthy as can be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have as much risk as a newborn ape. Now, and again, I'm not saying that I, I, don't, I didn't study this, but it's, uh, but I, I can tell you that they have a clotting factor right when they're ready for the breast. That's when they have the clotting factor go up to eight. So would it necessarily have? 110 percent. You mean yeah? It's a. It's not going to two hundred percent, right? Any other questions? Yeah. For what? Why do they have a? It's just a protect, protective against complication. The basic, biggest complication is um, is to bleed out, and this no, is. A, Oh, what is the idea to have? First of all, the, the, the secular world does have circumcisions as well. Um, there is scientific ideas for infection and for a different idea that they do do a bris milah. Um, and it is healthier to have a bris milah, yeah. Any other questions? Oh, look at that. No questions this time. Very clear. Wow, Bok Hashem. Okay. Hazak Baruch. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.